Well, before I pray, I'm going to ask for two special prayer requests. Number one, I just want to make everyone aware that uh, I want you to pray for our dear brother, Brian Milby. Uh, Brian is going to be focusing his attention from now on on planting the next church here from Providence, and we want to make sure that he's freed up of other responsibilities in order to do that. So please be in prayer for him. Be in prayer for the group that's going to be gathering around him as they prepare to help launch that church, and you'll be hearing more about that in our upcoming September members meeting. Uh, in addition to that, uh, we had this, this idea in elders. We looked around at one another, and we said, well, if, if Brian's going to be stepping away from youth ministry, which of us looks the youngest and is the best looking and could relate to kids the best? And of course, they chose me uh, to be able to work in that role. Uh, so I am going to be taking over Wednesday night youth meetings. And so students, I am looking forward to being with you. And I, I joke about that, but I did spend 20 years in youth ministry. And I am looking forward to resuming this role and getting to know you uh, and you getting to know your pastor too a little bit. So please in prayer for both Brian and for Lisa and myself as we jump into this K group, as we figure out the next steps for us here at Providence Baptist. Please join me in prayer. Lord, you are doing remarkable, wonderful things. Lord, you are seeing that the city of Huntsville and the city of Madison is being reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we know, Lord, that you place your healthy churches in these places to be a display of your glory. And so, Lord, we pray for providence as we begin to launch out with a church with Brian. We also pray, Lord, for our dear brother, Zach Carter, as he begins to implement and plant his church within the next couple of months. And Lord, we pray for the ministries here. Lord, even though we know that this means that some people may be going out from us in order to, to take the gospel into these other areas, we pray, Lord, that you would be sufficient. We pray for more laborers to come alongside of us, Lord, to fill the gaps, Lord, of making sure that all the ministry that has been going on so healthily here at Providence these many years would continue, and that, Lord, you would use us to be a blessing to the nations. And so, Lord, we're going to go back to the very promise that you made here in Genesis 15 this morning of you establishing a people for yourself and you being the ones to bring that about. And so, Lord, may you receive the glory. Open up our hearts to hear your word. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we have an extraordinary passage of Scripture before us. Genesis 15 records a momentous event that has far-reaching consequences beyond the life of Abraham. Just as the creation account was foundational to our origin of the universe, Genesis 15 will be foundational not only to the rest of the events in the Pentateuch, but also to the current Christian. As we read earlier in the service within Romans 4, how we currently relate to God goes all the way back to this episode in the Bible. And this chapter contains many firsts. Therefore, in order to maximize our time in this passage, I'm going to jump right into it. This morning, we're going to see the God who condescends to interact with his servants, God's specific promise to Abram, and the implications not only to Moses and the people following him in the 15th century BC, but also for us currently. And that's going to form our outline, the God who condescends, the God who promises, and the implications of this. 
But before we dive into Genesis 15, I need to give you a brief lesson on ancient covenants. If I don't, we will miss out on what's occurring in this passage. Moses' initial readers would understand precisely what is happening here because they would be familiar with covenants. The modern reader, not so much. And this is necessary information as much of the Bible contains covenants. For example, the book of Deuteronomy follows the form of an ancient Hittite covenant. And we already looked at one of these previously within the Noahic covenant in Genesis 9. But now we will need to see a more formal covenant in God's interaction with Abraham. So there will be a quiz later. Pay attention. All right? As a reminder, biblical covenants are not necessarily contracts, such as I do this for you in exchange, you will do this for me, or you will pay me a certain sum. Biblical covenants are promises. One party is promising to honor whatever they are committing to the other. Sometimes there are benefits to the one making the promise, sometimes not. But we need to keep in mind that the focus of a biblical covenant should primarily be on the one making the promise. I'm going to say that again because it's important. The focus of a biblical covenant should primarily be on the one making the promise. So, for example, under the Mosaic law, there is a promise on behalf of the Jews to honor God by living holy lives. If they do so, they will receive the benefit and the blessing of God's protection. They are the ones making the commitment. And as the greater party, God may decide how well the Jews as a people are honoring their promise and when and if he should cease blessing them. So when we read the book of Deuteronomy, we should primarily keep our eyes on whether or not the people are abiding by the conditions of their covenantal promises, not so much on the blessings that they may receive from God. Now, there are two types of ancient covenants. There is a vassal to suzerain covenant, and there is a suzerain to friend covenant. Now, we talked a little bit about the first of these a couple of weeks ago. In the vassal to suzerain covenant, the lesser party, known as the vassal, regardless of their social standing, makes promises to the suzerain or the great king. In this type of covenant, the vassal promises to abide by certain stipulations, such as delivering a portion of crops to the landowner, or providing men as soldiers in time of war, or just general fealty to the great king. And in exchange, the suzerain allows the vassal to participate in his kingdom, using his property, or guarantees the vassal's protection. All of the responsibility of the covenant falls upon the vassal. If he or she fails to maintain their commitment, then the great king can kick them out of the kingdom or withdraw his protection at his discretion. So, for example, let's say a vassal is living on, as a farmer on a land of a great lord. And he has promised to give 50 bushels of wheat to his master every season. But this season, he could not meet his quota due to a drought. Then the landlord does not have to remove his tenant from his property. He can choose to, to give grace to the farmer under these extenuating circumstances. Or he might use the occasion to give the land to someone else. But it's at the greater party's discretion. The responsibility to keep the promise falls upon the vassal. That is a vassal to suzerain covenant. Now, the other type of covenant is called a suzerain to a friend. This is a covenant from the greater party to the lesser. 
In this covenant, all of the responsibility falls upon the suzerain as he is the one making a promise to his friend. An example of this would be when a great king sends out a general to do battle for him, and the general returns victorious with all the spoils to give to the king. And the king rewards the general with a grant of land and his protection and blessing for the rest of his life. Possibly he might provide him with a title, maybe even allow him, the general that is, to marry into the king's family. All of the stipulations fall upon the great king. The general does nothing but receive the blessing. So in the vassal to suzerain covenant, the vassal is making the promise. In the suzerain to friend covenant, the suzerain is making the promise. Now covenants were usually struck in a formal ceremony, and you can usually recognize them by their elements. Typically, there were seven elements in a covenant, and I've listed those in your outline. You can take a look at those there. Now, not all of these had to be present depending on the type of covenant. For example, the suzerain to a friend covenant didn't necessarily need a mediator. But generally, we find these elements present in ancient covenants. If a suzerain was extremely powerful, there might need to be an ambassador that would represent you and mediate between the vassal and the great king. Moses acts in such a role on behalf of Israel in the Mosaic Covenant. Also, there was almost always some type of historical prologue that introduced the two parties and how they relate to one another. Then there would be the stipulations of the covenant. These were the conditions of what one party was promising to the other. And this was followed by the consequences or the benefits of maintaining those promises that were announced. If you kept the covenant, you received blessing. If you didn't, you received curses. Then there was usually some specific sign of the covenant. In ancient practice, this could be anything from drawing blood to erecting a monument. Later in chapter 17, we'll see the sign of the covenant to Abram will be circumcision. And thank God it follows two chapters later. And generally, in the vassal to suzerain covenant, there was some type of witness. However, in the suzerain to friend covenant, there might not be a witness as there was no greater authority than the great king himself to vouch for his word. And usually, covenants ended with an announcement of how the terms of the covenant would be posted or read again to remind the parties of what was promised. So, for example, when Joshua crossed the Jordan River, the first thing he did was erect a monument and read the law to the people to remind them of their obligations of living in the land. There could be some nuance to these elements, these seven elements, but typically, this is what ancient covenants looked like. So with this as our background, let's look at the covenant here of Genesis 15. This is found on page 10 of your pew Bible. It's going to help you to have your Bibles open here. Now, it should come as no surprise that the suzerain in this covenant is God. There is no higher authority than the Lord God, maker of heaven and earth. And the first thing we notice is God's condescension towards this man, Abram. We're talking about the sovereign God of the universe who speaks to this lesser being in a manner that he can understand. Don't take it for granted that God uses words and language and covenants to communicate to his people. He doesn't have to speak to them at all. And God comes to Abraham, not the other way around. As we learn from Psalm 8 this summer, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, O God? 
In our last sermon, we looked at these first words, after these things. These were all the events that occurred between Genesis 12 and up to this point. Abram now knew the character of the promise-keeping God that had been overseeing and directing his life. The Lord had given him land, protection from his enemies, and great spoils from his exploits, even when Abram had been in the wrong. Abram had been blessed by God, and the proof was in the pudding, as they say. Now Abram is able to understand the character of this great suzerain who will make a covenant with him. Now, the text reveals that the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, this is a technical phrase that's used of God speaking to the prophets who become his emissaries. And in chapter 20, verse 7, Abram will be called a prophet by God himself to Ambimelech, the king of Gerar. And it's not unusual that when the great almighty God speaks to humanity, his first words have to be, fear not. Fear not. Otherwise, we would be filled with dread due to our sin in comparison to our holy, holy, holy God. This event is immediately after the war with Ketelamar, the great king of the north in chapter 14. Remember, Abram refused his share of the spoils of victory. And God tells Abram that he is his shield, a term meaning protection, and that his reward will be great. The reward will not just be material possessions like what Abram took from Ketelamar, but Abram gets God himself. Now Abram speaks, and this is the first time in the story where there is a dialogue between God and Abram. In your ESV Bibles, Abram addresses God as, O Lord God, in verse 2, and he's going to do so again in verse 8. But literally, in Hebrew, this is sovereign Lord. In response to God's declaration that his reward will be great, Abram asked what he will give him as God already promised him an heir, but he still remains childless. The only person that he could pass down anything that the Lord gives him is to his servant, the Syrian Eleazar. And God deigns to answer Abram. He declares that Eleazar will not be his heir. Rather, he tells Abram to step outside and look up in the night sky. One of the most vivid memories that I ever had was crossing the Sula Sea by boat overnight when I was in Indonesia. My friends Rindy and Olivia can also testify here. There is a minimal amount of light that is on the boat. And when you sit on the deck, you can see so many stars, way more than I could count. It was absolutely spectacular. In fact, it caused a few of my traveling companions to just break out and sing, how great thou art in response. And in that primitive night sky, I believe Abram had the same sort of vision before him. And the Lord God promises that his offspring will be as numerous as the stars. And perhaps one of the most important verses in the Bible, at least according to the Apostle Paul, is verse 6. And he believed Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is the first time that the word believe is used in the Bible. The sovereign God declares Abram to be righteous. Now, we're going to speak on that a bit later in the sermon. So now God has just promised Abram a blood descendant who will produce offspring as numerous as the stars. 
Therefore, he will establish a formal covenant with him. God just made the promise. So what type of covenant do you think this is? What kind? I told you there's a quiz. Okay, Susan, a friend. Very good. You were listening. I like that. So verse 7 acts as a historical prologue as we're introduced to the two parties and their relationship. I am Yahweh who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. We have Yahweh as one party, which literally this is, I am, I am, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and Abram from Ur, the other party. And the relationship is that it was Yahweh who brought Abram into this land in order to possess it. And Abram asks his second question here. He's not doubting here, by the way, as he addresses the Lord once again as sovereign Lord. He knows that God will do this. Abraham already believed, according to verse 6. Abram is asking for evidence of the process. Instead of giving him an immediate answer, he tells Abram to collect these five animals and cut them in half. Abram does so. Now, let me explain the purpose. This is where we get the phrase, to cut a covenant. This was a normal practice in a covenantal ceremony. It's called a dramatized curse, a dramatized curse. An animal was cut into two halves, and the one making the promise would walk in between the two pieces with the understanding that such a curse of those animals being cut in two would come upon them if they failed to keep their promise. And you can find a good example of one in Jeremiah chapter 34. So Abram obeys, and he cuts up these animals. And he has to to keep the predators at bay from eating the carcasses for the rest of the afternoon. And verse 12 tells us that this ceremony now moves into the second day. God will now answer the question of verse 8. And Abram sleeps. And as he sleeps, a dreadful, great darkness overwhelms him. For the first time, Abram experiences the fear of the Lord. He himself experiences the power of the Almighty God. Then Yahweh speaks and tells him that his offspring will be travelers in a strange land. They will become afflicted servants of the inhabitants of that land. But after 400 years, God will deliver them and return them to Canaan with great increase. Now to specify here, Abram will not be included in this journey. Rather, he will die in a state of contentment and be buried in this land at a good old age before this occurs. Now, before we move on, we can see that obviously this refers to the Jews in captivity in Egypt. And Lord willing, we will read in the final chapters of Genesis that Abram's descendants will temporarily relocate to Egypt due to a famine where they will become enslaved. We also will discover that Abram will live another hundred years past this point, and he will be buried in the promised land at Hebron. The Jews will return to this area as well some 400 years later, and they will forcibly reclaim the land. And here is why in verse 18, for the iniquity of the Amorites is incomplete. When the Jews return and forcibly evict the Amorites, it will be an act of judgment upon that people for their sin. Yahweh is not just the God of Abram. He is also the God over all nations. Now, the next event in verse 17 is what is so astounding. The darkness surrounding Abram here, God himself walks between the animal halves. Who is taking responsibility for the stipulations? Right, God. 
Who will receive the curse if Abraham has no physical descendant and if those descendants do not inherit and enter the promised land? God. What is Abraham's obligations here? Nothing. So what kind of covenant is this again? It's a friendship covenant, isn't it? We have the narrator's summary statement which defines the borders of this promised land to Abram. Verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, to the great river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Kadamites and the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. These were all people that would need to be evicted. And if you've seen the Barbie movie, you know just how bad the Kenites can be. They can be despicable with their form of patriarchy. That is a joke. This territory will not be fully realized by the Jewish people until the reign of the future King David. Now, we're going to have to save the reasons why it took so long for a future sermon. But God makes quite a promise here to Abram. To this man whose integrity at best waffles, but reveals what kind of gracious and magnanimous deity is Yahweh. What is man that you were mindful of him, O Lord? Let's consider the implications for the readers of this document when Moses collected these stories, and also the implications for us this day. When Moses recorded these words, part of this prophecy was already fulfilled. Abram's descendants had been in Egypt for over 400 years, 430 to be exact. And they had become slaves to the Egyptians. And they had been delivered from the hands of the Egyptians and had come out of their captivity with great rewards. And they had flourished to great numbers. At the moment that they had read this account, they would have been at the border of Canaan. And they would be facing an enemy that seemed much more superior to them. Such words would have bolstered the Jews in conquering the land. This was the land that Yahweh, the God who always keeps his promises, promised to give them. That he would become a curse if they didn't receive him. A thought inconceivable to any Jew. And they would be assured that God was using them to punish the iniquity of the people currently living in the land. Their cause would be just. So such a story would be very encouraging to the contemporary audience of Moses. And it came to be just as God promised. It was so successful that the Hebrew people wrote songs about it. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 105. This is found on page 503 of your pew Bible. Here we can see a quick glance at how God kept his promise and and how the people responded and looked at it from this point on. Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of his wondrous works. Glory in the holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. 
Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered? O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute to Israel, as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When they were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. So this covenant in Genesis 15 is seen as a turning point in Jewish history. But this account has massive implications for us as well. Turn back in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Again, this is on page 941 of your pew Bible. Now, I am not of Jewish descent. As far as I know, I cannot trace my bloodline back to Abraham. Can I be included in God's covenant people? Can I receive God's blessings? Or am I excluded because I'm not a direct descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or any of his 12 sons? I might think, well, maybe I could be included if I start obeying all the commands to the Jewish people and give an outward demonstration of holiness. Then I could be included within God's covenant people and represent him on the earth. Paul has an answer to this question, to this dilemma. How does one become a partaker of the offspring of Abraham? Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Again, he's quoting here, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In other words, he, he worked to earn them. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from the works. David writes, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiveness, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing only then for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Again, Genesis 15, 6. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Remember, he hasn't received the sign of the covenant until chapter 17. He received the sign of the circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Oh, we're getting to some good stuff here. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Read that again, verse 11. How is righteousness granted to us? 
Faith through belief. Is it through works of the law? No. It's by walking by faith in the promise of God just as Abraham did. Paul goes on to write, verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, as it was in Abram's case back in Genesis 15, there is no transgression. That's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the ones who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it's written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, He believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Remember when he was looking up in the night sky? He saw how many stars? Could he count them? No, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But here's the good news for us. But the words, it was counted to him, was not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. For whose sake? Ours. Ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, it's important that we read the summary in the next two verses, okay? Chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. (laughs) Oh, friend, Paul has just said that we are able to stand before this holy God due to our works. Did he say that? No, it's not due to our works. We don't stand before him based on how holy we can act. We are only able to stand before God and be received as his child by faith in what Jesus has done for us in his death on the cross. Literally, Jesus taking the cross, uh, curse upon himself at the cross that we all deserved so that we might be justified by faith. The only way that you can have peace with God is by faith in Jesus. It's the only way. But let me encourage you, believer, those of you who might be experiencing weak faith or a lack of assurance right now, weak or strong is not as important as just having faith, period. Look at Romans chapter 4, verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith 
as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Abram's faith didn't start out strong. The three chapters prior to this one reveal that, but it grew stronger as he came to depend upon God. Abraham never saw the promise realized on the earth, but it happened. And I'm sure all of us would like to get a glimpse of heaven just to know that it's true, just to know that it's worth it. But God does not want our faith to be based upon our destination. He wants our belief to be based on the process that the Lord God, sovereign of heaven and earth, has orchestrated through his son Jesus Christ so that he might get the glory. It's about what God did to save you. And how did Abraham's faith get stronger here? Verse 21, he gave glory to God. So if you're struggling with doubts, if you keep saying to yourself, oh, I just want to be so rid of this particular sin, but I just keep giving in. If if you were down and depressed beyond measure where you can literally say, I just don't have any joy right now. You give glory to God. You continue to say, regardless of how little I know, regardless of how I act, regardless of how I feel, you go back to the gospel of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven to intercede on your behalf, and you declare, I will give glory to God, the only one that I know that can save me, because that is what your hope is based upon. Not on you, not on your feelings, and not even on your feelings of assurance. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we have in Abraham's covenant a type of the new covenant that we have in Jesus Christ. That we can see, Lord, that if we believe, if our faith is in you, the God who created this salvific process through your one and only Son, to take on the curse on our behalf so that we might stand before you and receive his righteousness in exchange, that if we believe that, then it is counted to us as righteousness. It's not based upon our performance. It's not based upon how we feel at any particular moment. But it's based on what you have done in salvific history. It's based upon the work of Christ alone. It's based upon the work of the Holy Spirit as he imparts this truth upon our hearts and he effectually calls us into your presence. So, Lord, I pray, first and foremost, for anyone here, Lord, who is seeking peace with you. I pray, Lord, that you would use these passages of Scripture to see that the only way we can have peace before you, the only way we can have eternal life and know that we receive this same blessing is if we trust in Jesus Christ. And, Lord, we pray that for those believers who are struggling, who are going through hardships right now. Some like myself who have experienced deep, dark depression. And Lord, they wonder if they can feel your presence even now. Lord, we just pray that you would remind them that the conditions of the covenant have not changed. You promise to still be there. You promise to be our shield and our great reward. And you can do that because Christ has accomplished everything needed and it's not based on us at all. So allow the glorious gospel to resonate inside of us so that we might give you glory.
when we survey this wondrous cause, oh Lord, allow us just to stand in awe at what you've done. We pray this in the finished work of Christ on that cross. Amen.